Chris Hadfield, Commander Chris Hadfield. He is a man who, as we say, has been out in space and he has been helping us understand exactly what is required to head into Interstellar. Five, four, three, two, one, and liftoff of Tom Marshburn, Roman Romanenko and Chris Hadfield making their way towards the International Space Station. First and foremost, I've got to say a huge thank you for genuinely you sparing the time to talk to us over there in Toronto. And the opening question's got to be, why do you think a mission to Mars excites and captures the imagination as much as it does? Uh, I think a lot of people get involved in the day-to-day. You're, you're busy with the things that you need to do every day. But occasionally, uh, when there's a quiet moment, you have a chance to look up. Look up at the, the blue of the sky and in the nighttime, of course, especially... Uh, there in Dubai, uh, get away from the lights of the city, you can see infinity, and, and it just stretches your imagination of, of what might be there. And and some of the most alluring things in the sky are, are of course, are the nearby objects, the moon, so predominant, but, but Mars, uh, a beautiful red dot just beckoning for us to come. And ever since Galileo first raised his telescope and started looking at the surface, it's been even more intriguing. Uh, we can see the closer we get just how much water there used to be there. And it's still very, very difficult for us to get there. But uh, the, the more we learn about Mars, I think the more we're drawn to it. We see its similar past to the Earth in history, the fact that there's still vast amounts of water frozen in the poles of Mars. And uh, as an alternative place to live besides Earth, it is the second best planet in the whole solar system. What do you think, in your opinion, what does it take to become an astronaut? I, I've been uh, served as an astronaut for 21 years, so I've been through the selection myself. Uh, and then I helped with two of the NASA astronaut selections and two of the Canadian astronaut selections. And then I actually did a, a program on BBC uh, where we, we showed exactly what selection is like. There, there are three fundamental things that every uh, successful candidate needs to demonstrate. And this applies to all the 4,000 people that have applied. Number one is just physical fitness. You're going to be a long way from a hospital or from medical care. So you need not just um, a cardiovascularly fit body, but just a healthy body that has a high probability of not developing a problem when you're a long way from home. Uh, Number two is uh, a proven ability to learn complicated things in a hurry. When I was hired as an astronaut, we weren't cooperating with the Russians at all. But then uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, suddenly it became a possibility. And and I had to then learn to speak Russian and then learn to fly a spaceship in Russian. And it's it's difficult to predict that that's what may happen. But you need someone who has demonstrated the ability to learn complicated things. And so uh, often we'll choose people like so many of them are ADR who have an advanced university degree which is sort of like a, if you have a PhD in astrophysics, then we know you can learn complicated stuff. But then the third is, is equally important, and that is the ability to make good decisions when the consequences really matter. We don't just want to hire healthy students because they haven't really proven themselves. Um, you want people that have faced high-consequence situations and proven their ability to make the right call. And that's why traditionally the space agencies of the world have chosen Uh, test pilots and and medical doctors and people who have run large programs, uh, deep sea divers, people who are mountain climbers, people who not only have the academic and physical side, but the decision-making side. Uh, But even still, out of 4,000, that'll still be a few hundred. And and then it comes down to what sort of person are they? What else can you do? Is this someone that you would want to go all the way to Mars with? 
locked in a small capsule for, for months and months. And, and so it comes down very much to not only what you've done and what you were born with, but who have you turned yourself into. I'm incredibly envious of you, Chris. I remember being a small boy and, and dreaming one day of being an astronaut, as so many of us do when we're, we're small children. You've gone on to, I guess, live out your dream. But it's not all about it. I mean, it's a, an amazing thing that you've done, but there are problems as well with it. Talk to perhaps uh, some of the problems that you encountered. I believe at one stage you went blind during a spacewalk. Is that right? Well, I served 21 years as an astronaut, and people focus on the time that you're in space, which in my case, over three space flights, totaled about six months off the planet. But of course, that means the real life of an astronaut is, is 20 and a half years of training and preparation and study and, and inventing space flight and then proving it in all the simulators. So it, uh, a life of an astronaut is, is not a nine-to-five kind of thing. It's uh, a worldwide... Uh, rigorous, continuous study and preparation for decades of your life. But I loved it, every minute of it. But it's full of problems, of course. Things develop on Earth, flights get delayed, it's difficult uh, to successfully fly in space. And then, as you say, Chris, once you get into space, things go wrong. And I, I've done two spacewalks where you put on the huge white spacesuit and go outside of the ship. And during one of those, there was contamination floating around inside my helmet that worked its way into my left eye and it was it was harsh and caustic enough that my eye uh, stopped working it, it just snapped shut and was tearing really badly but unfortunately you're you're in, in weightlessness so your natural clearing mechanism which is your tears they don't work without gravity your tears don't fall and so my my tears didn't drain the contaminant out of my eye it just got a bigger and bigger ball of tears until it got so big that it actually flowed across my nose into my right eye. And then I was completely blind for a while uh, outside on my first spacewalk. And, and I had to open the purge valve on my suit and let fresh oxygen come in and let the contaminated oxygen squirt out into the universe. Um, pretty, pretty amazing place to be out there in space listening to my my minuscule oxygen supply hiss out into the universe. But eventually it helped with evaporation. I could see well enough. Uh, I could close the purge valve and get back to work. And it turned out to be nothing more than the anti-fog that we use on our visors. But even something as mundane as that uh, caused a serious enough problem that it became, in a sense, a life-threatening. Ground control to Major Tom. Commencing countdown engines on. Paint a picture for us. Can you describe how it felt to be out there, just you, your spacesuit, and a completely uninterrupted view of Earth, not within the safety and protection of the ISS? What did that feel like? It, it is magnificent. It is. Um, it's incredible to to be able to open the hatch where you're locked inside a uh, a, a tiny little um, airlock. It's like being in, in a little claustrophobic closet and then you you open the hatch and pull yourself out and and you go from this this uh darkness to now being surrounded by infinity that goes on forever in every direction and on one side of you the world is is silently omnipresently turning beside you it's all the colors and textures it's sort of in the distance but when you look the other way there, there's an 
there's a velvety blackness that just goes on forever. And, and it's unbelievably alluring and beautiful. And, and you're just, you're gobsmacked in the middle of it. You know, you're, you're, you're hanging on uh, sort of for dear life. If I could have seen my knuckles, they would have been white, I think, from holding on. But after a while, I, I, of course, you're busy out there uh, building things and, and retrieving experiments and such. But I stole every moment I could just to notice where I was. And at one point, I was just holding on as delicately as I could. I got myself perfectly still, and I let go just to fly through space along with the space station to really get a sense of where I was, both the aloneness of it, but also the incredible new privilege of, of seeing the world and the universe that way. It's like a door opening that we can never close again. You do really paint a beautiful picture, Chris. My goodness, it is just riveting listening to you. I guess one of the other things, and it perhaps is hard maybe to put into words, certainly it would be for me, I've no doubt that you'll put it beautifully into words, the sensations that you go through. Talk to us about that, the smell, perhaps the smells, the, the feelings that go, you go through as you make your way in space. When you're outside in a spacewalk, inside your spacesuit, the pressure is very low in your suit. And so the only thing you can really hear is, is the, the companionship of your own breathing, which is delightful. You, uh, you, you just have your, your breath as a reminder of where you are. And, and it, there's really no smell or odor at all because it's a, it's a pure oxygen environment coming in over your head. But when you come back inside and we close the airlock behind ourselves, we repressurize the airlock and we pop our helmet off what you actually can smell there is the lingering smell of space because it's just been repressurized from the vacuum. And, and it's, a, it's a strange sort of hint of an odor, like, like maybe someone has just extinguished a fire or, or maybe if, if, you're, if you're cooking meat and a little bit of the fat falls on the, on the hot flame and there's that slight sort of ozone charcoal smell. I think it's coming from the metal itself where the, the emptiness of space, the vacuum of space has, has pulled some of the trace chemicals out of the metal, sort of a tiny bit of ozone out of the metal. It's like when you fire a gun and, and there's that little little smell afterwards. At the time, I remember thinking, this is sort of like, like uh, a witch was just here, you know, and just disappeared in a cloud of smoke. And there's that, that tiny little trace of a lingering smell of, uh, of, of something magic having just happened. It's it's uh, and then it goes away. It gets absorbed, but it's it's the closest you can get to actually physically sensing space itself. This is ground control. So we talked a bit about that sensation of being out in space. Let's talk a little bit about what happens inside the International Space Station, because of course you're there in a relatively confined space with just a few people for months, really, at a time. Tell us a little bit about those interactions. What are some of the conversations that go on, and what's the worst argument you've ever witnessed? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Sonal. In essence, the, the space station is just a huge laboratory. Uh, we've had people living on it continuously for the last 18 years. So we left, we left Earth 18 years ago, permanently. When, when we look back in history, that's when we started living off the planet and started settling somewhere else. Um, on board, you're busy as can be. There are six of us normally. There are six up there right now. Um, working away, running the 200 experiments, fixing broken things on the ship, you know, just just being people up there, occasionally grabbing a guitar and playing a little music if you can find a few quiet moments. It's so prescribed and, and scheduled and busy. Um, and, and the ship is bigger than you think. It's a, inside, it's about the size of two, um, two A320s, say, two big standard airliners. And there's only six people. And 
And so you could actually work for half a day and not even run into another astronaut. You can just sort of work away at your experiments for half a day. Um, we get together in evenings, uh, try and gather for one meal a day to compare notes, talk about what's happened during the day. You exercise two hours a day. And very seldom does an argument come up. It's, it's a group of people who are extremely well-trained, who are very carefully selected, who have an enormous amount of work to do, and who are, who are flat-out working for the whole six months they're there. Um, the, there's, there's chiding and jibing. We have, we have uh, games you can play in weightless. Hide-and-go-seek is great in weightlessness because you can hide <laughs> places you would never think you could hide. And we also would have races to see who could get from one end of the space station. And, and uh, you'd, you'd have to bring a little piece of packing foam and way at the other end, there was a bag that we kept all our packing foam in uh, that came up on the unmanned resupply ships. And you had to, uh, you know, the stopwatch would start, go all the way down, get it in the packing foam bag, bring it all the way back and touch the finish line. And, you know, just we're just people. And we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries, and we, we call down to family back on Earth. But it's not lonely. It, I don't know that I've ever felt more connected to Earth. To go around it, 16 times a day to see all seven and a half billion people uh you're you see the world in a way that that uh, almost nobody ever has and uh, there are there are people in the middle of dubai who are far more lonely than the six people that are up on the space station it's really it's more of a psychological thing than a geographical thing it's an amazingly fulfilling and busy busy place to work and I count myself so lucky to have to have gone to space stations three times. On that then, Chris, if you're looking down at seven and a half billion people, when you do make the journey back onto this planet that we call home, what is the first thing that you did? Was there anything that you craved and that you made sure that the first thing you did was, I guess, scratch that itch? Uh, the first was to call my wife. Uh, that, on my third flight, we landed out on the on the empty prairies, the the steppes of Kazakhstan because uh, we come down under a parachute. So you can land within about a 15-mile circle, but but you need to land in an inherently empty spot. Um, and fortunately, the, my, my flight surgeon had brought along a satellite phone so I could talk to my wife and reassure her that I was okay. And then you get in a helicopter, and then what I wanted was just some some normal, uh, sloppy, fresh earth food, you know, and just something I hadn't had in half a year. But the first place the airplane stopped and you'll like this, Chris, was in um, Scotland, in oh, Prestwick, in Air, right there on the coast. And and I, I would, if you're going to land somewhere on the earth and ask for a pizza, I'm not sure Scotland is the <laughs> best place in, on the planet to get pizza. It was, <laughs> it was the best pizza I'd had in six months. But, <laughs> but uh, and it was nice to have just some, some random uh, messy food. But uh, mostly, of course, what you miss is family and, and proximity and, and just you know, the chance to be back uh, and, and reflect on the experience and, and what it meant to you. And uh, and it's it's something that is now within me for the rest of my life, too. So a magnificent experience. I did tell the guys that I wanted to ask this question, and they've been ribbing me about this, but I, I want to ask this question, and I'm going to do it with a straight face. You've been in space. You have seen the world and all its glory from up there. Do you, and again, don't laugh when I ask you this question, do you believe, having been up there, an alien life form? Well, belief is kind of irrelevant. The real question is, are there aliens or not? It doesn't yes. really matter what I believe. You know, um, uh, We've never found evidence of life anywhere but Earth. We're looking like crazy. We're, we're driving rovers around on Mars. We've found uh, over 2,500 planets around other stars, the nearby stars to us. 
Uh, we've looked close at the atmospheres of the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, and we're looking. Um, we're, we have satellites or dishes looking up, listening for sounds from the universe. But as much as the movies and, and, uh, and popular media would want you to think, we haven't found life yet, but we sure are looking. Uh, and the real question is, what are, what are the probabilities? Is, do we think there's life or not? And what we're discovering through our best telescopes is that every star has planets. And we can count the stars in the universe because we can count the stars in our galaxy and then we can count the galaxies. And what the numbers we come up with are staggeringly huge on the order of not a billion, not a trillion, but like uh, what comes next, uh, quadrillion, quintillion, heptillion, septillion. We think there are at least septillion planets out there. So we found life in one place. So you'd think the odds are about septillion to one, that there must be life also somewhere else. But it's, it's probably very hard to find, and intelligent life even harder to find. Um, so I think probably we'll find life, maybe even on Mars, maybe even on the moon, when you dig down under the, the dead surface. You never know. And we're looking. But so far, uh, we've, we've only been looking for such a short period, less than the amount of time I've been alive. So it's still new. I, I'm... I'm confident that at some point we'll find life somewhere besides Earth. But until we do, we're, we're all just guessing.